Our text today is found in Psalm 3. And if you would open your Bibles to Psalm 3, that's what we'll be looking at today. Psalm 3, and I'll read it, follow along if you would. A Psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. O Lord, how many are my foes, how many rise up against me. Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him, Selah. But you are a shield around me, O Lord. You bestow glory on me and lift up my head. To the Lord I cry aloud, and he answers me from his holy hill, Selah. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear the ten, tens of thousands drawn up against me on every side. Arise, O Lord, deliver me, O my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. Selah. Just a word before we get into it. Selah appears three times in the psalm. We're not quite sure what it means. It's a musical term. Um, I've always thought it in fact meant that the congregation, as they're saying this, should take a moment to pause. It's almost like pause and think of what's being said before moving on to what follows. We've been looking at the Psalms and prayer. And Psalm 3 is actually the first prayer in the book of Psalms, as we've seen, because Psalms 1 and 2 get us ready. They pave the way. They aren't actually prayers. They prepare us to pray. We never get past needing this help, by the way. We always need help to prepare to pray. Um, Otherwise, I think we might be careless and simply jump into it rather than thinking of what we are doing to whom we are speaking. As the book of Psalms opens, we read of God's law. And as we saw a couple weeks ago, the word for Torah, for law, is a, a javelin, something that is thrown at a target. And God aims his word, his law, at us. He speaks to us in a very piercing, in a very penetrating way. And this enables us to respond in prayer. We answer God. He has spoken to us in words and we answer him in words as well. Last week we looked at the issue of text and language. Just to review a bit with regard to text, there are at least three backstories or three conditions that are behind the Psalms. Um, when we read the Psalms, we can't say, well, this is where I am in my life, and so I'm going to read this Psalm, and that's what the Psalm means. I've had many people ask me, you know, I'm in this situation, which Psalm should I read? As though their condition, their situation, sort of sets the, the stage for the Psalm, and it's actually the other way around. There are, in fact, historical settings for the Psalms, um, and we should keep that in mind. But there are three things that we need to remember as we read the Psalms. First of all, the theology, and the most important here is the reality of God, that God exists, that God has spoken. Without God, the Psalms don't exist. Because if God does not exist, if he does not speak, then we cannot respond to him in the Psalms as we find them written. The Psalmist did not necessarily comprehend God, although there are times when it seems that they have a deeper understanding than perhaps we do. But while they may not have known much about God, we might say theologically they were deficient because Jesus had not yet come into the world, there were certain things that they knew clearly. There's a real clarity. 
They knew to be true that God had made the world, that God had entered into covenant with Abraham, that God had delivered Israel in the Exodus, and that God gave the law through Moses. They also knew that certain things were not true, that God's not arbitrary, that God is not indifferent to his people, and that he could not be manipulated. The second backstory is that of the canon. The Psalms are part of Scripture. We can't simply look at the Psalms by themselves in isolation. Um, It is a book made up of 150 Psalms, but it is one book in 66 books that we call the Scripture or the canon. And the only way I think to understand the book of Psalms is to look at the rest of Scripture. Because otherwise we will then present our backstory and we will have, I think, a faulty understanding of Scripture. The Psalms are not scraps of paper that have been put into a bottle and cast on the ocean and we don't know where they came from or who wrote them. We know what country they came from. We know who wrote them. Um, We know quite a bit, in fact, of the people who wrote these. The Psalms are part of Scripture. The third thing that we saw last week as a backstory is that the Psalms were to be read by God's people, not primarily as individuals, but as a community, as a worshiping community. Prayer is not primarily an individual exercise. It is a family activity. Now, you may remember the words of Jesus that when two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. It may be that our prayers originate from our individual condition, that something's happened to us at home or at work, Uh, some trouble has come into our life, And we don't have time to wait until Sunday to pray about it, and so we pray right then. But as we come together as a congregation, this is where prayer is to be done. Communal prayer that we pray together. And so the congregation in prayer is to be the base of our prayers through the rest of the week. Now with regard to language, we saw last week, I will talk about that in a few minutes. As I said earlier, Psalm 3 is the first prayer in the book of Psalms, and it is introduced with the words, a psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. What is this all about? Well, it actually, the backstory to this is found in 2 Samuel chapters 11, or I'm sorry, chapters 13 through 15. It involves David's son Absalom, and let me recount it to you briefly. Absalom was David's son by Maacah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. He was David's third son. He had a sister named Tamar, who was a very beautiful young woman. Now, David's eldest son was named Amnon. Uh, He was uh, David's son by Ahinoam of Jezreel. Amnon fell in love with his half-sister, Tamar, uh, to the point that He was frustrated to the point of illness, we read in 2 Samuel 13. His cousin, his friend, Jonadab, the son of David's brother, gave him some advice. He says, this is what you should do. So Amnon pretended to be sick. And when David went to check on his son, because this is the crown prince, this is the guy who's going to be king after David, um, Amnon said, if you could have my sister come and make some food for me, I'm sure that would make me feel better. So David sent Tamar, and she in fact prepared some food for him. Well, when she came, 
Amnon sent everybody out of the room. He said, everybody get out of the room. And when they did, he grabbed her and was going to force her. And Tamar said to him, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. What about me? Where could I get rid of my disgrace? And what about you? She says to Amnon, you would be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. Well, Amnon did not listen to his sister. He raped her. And then we are told he despised her. Having raped her, he despised her. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her and sent her away. He did a greater evil in this by sending her away than he had done already. He sentenced her to a life of disgrace. When David heard about this, he was furious. But he did nothing. Because this is the crown prince. Amnon is going to be king after him. So he can't punish him. I mean, if he's going to punish him, he should put him to death. He can't do that. So he does nothing. Absalom, Tamar's brother, they have the same mother, is outraged. But he plans his revenge. Two years later, um, it is time to shear the sheep. And Absalom invites his father to come. And David's like, listen, I'm busy. I, I can't go. And then Absalom says, well, what about my brothers? Can my brothers come? And he says, sure. So Amnon and the other sons of David go. And at lunchtime, Absalom kills Amnon. He gets his revenge for the rape of his sister. David is outraged again. Absalom is sent into exile. And to make a long story short, after a period of time, he is allowed to come back. And when Absalom comes back, he begins to undermine his father's authority. And then ultimately he pulls off a coup, a coup d'etat. And David and the rest of the family are on the run. It is at some point as they are running away from Absalom that David writes Psalm 3. In the midst of their trying to escape from a son who wants to kill him. Imagine a son who wants to kill his own father. David writes this psalm. I've told you this story because I want you to know that this psalm was not written in a vacuum. There is, in fact, a story. This is an incident in the life of David. Everybody's life has stories, has incidents. Probably not coups, people trying to overthrow us, and hopefully not the treachery of a child. But we do face conflicts and failures, fears, love, betrayal, loss, and even salvation, God's salvation. Every day is a story. I think we need to remember that. Morning and evening serving as boundaries so that when we arise in the morning, God has kept us through the night and we can have the morning prayer. And then after a day and the evening, we can have the evening prayer. And neither one of these prayers are to be prayed in a vacuum, but in many ways are a recounting of what God has done for us. And we give thanks. We ask forgiveness for the things that we have done wrong, our sins. But prayers are not to be prayed in a vacuum. Psalm 3 is prayed in the middle of the story. I think all prayer is prayed in a story by someone who is in a story. There should be no storyless prayers. Uh, let me say that again. There should be no storyless prayers. I think oftentimes our prayers have no story. We just say words and there's no context. We haven't, 
what's, what's happened in the past hour, or the past six hours, or day, or week. We simply say these words because we think that's what prayer is supposed to be. Uh, Eugene Peterson, in his book on this, says that story is to prayer what the body is to the soul. And if, in fact, you have no soul, what you're left with is a body that is a corpse. In the same way, if you have prayer without a story, then you have a corpse. You don't really have prayer. Most of the Psalms have a title, a sentence or a phrase that places the Psalm in a story. Only 34 of the Psalms do not have a title. Sometimes the sentence makes a clear connection with a familiar biblical story. If you go back to Samuel, the, book of, the books of Samuel or Chronicles, you will find the story behind this particular psalm, as we've just done with Psalm 3. Sometimes the title gives instructions on how this is to be sung or used in worship. Let's talk about story in our prayers Spiritualized prayer, when people think that they're praying very spiritual or holy prayers, if you wish, are in many ways denatured prayer. Uh, It's prayer without all the dirt and all the turmoil and all the trouble that goes on in our lives. We can become quite excited in such prayers. People can become quite animated about such things. Um, they're They're not contaminated by the roughness of life, the difficulties of life. But in many ways, this is escapism. It's not really prayer. It's a form of escape. It's not what we find in the book of Psalms. And that's why we find the titles. See, I think Psalm 3 is an impressive psalm. It's a wonderful psalm. But without the title, without the backstory, it loses so much. Now that I realize that this is David praying, that's important. That he's praying when he ran away from his son Absalom. And then I go back to 2 Samuel like, ah, yes. And particularly, I I would say in verse number 2, what strikes me is many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. Because one could make the case that because David did not punish his son Amnon for raping his daughter, David should run for his life. He should be punished. And because Absalom was not put to death for killing his own brother, and David didn't do anything about it, then David should be on the run. That's why people are saying about David, yeah, God's not going to deliver him. Yeah, he's he's messed up too big, too bad. Uh, God will not deliver him. By the way, in 2 Samuel chapter 23, the first verse, we read, These are the last words of David, the oracle of David, son of Jesse, the oracle of the man exalted by the Most High, the man anointed by the God of Jacob, Israel's singer of songs. The ESV has the sweet psalmist of Israel. It is worth noting that, in fact, David's life is one of the most narrated in the Old Testament. I think only Moses, it's sort of a close there, only Moses maybe we know as much about, but we know more about David, I would say, almost than anyone in the Old Testament. We read about him in his youth, and then his adult life, and then finally in his old age. We know him when he is single, and when he's married. 
multiple times. His actions in war and in peace. His holiness and his sins. His friends and betrayals, his triumphs and his tragedies. We are told of a life, the life of David, which covers the whole spectrum, I would say, of human experience. And it is this person about whom we are told so many stories that, in fact, we are shown the most at prayer. At least 73 of the Psalms, we are told, are from David. They are of David. And we're not, I wonder who David is. We know who David is because we have been told his stories uh, in Scripture. The outside of David's life, the exterior, is told to us in Second, First uh, and Second Samuel and First Chronicles. The inside of his story is told us in the Book of Psalms, when we are told of his prayers. If you wish, in, in the books of Samuel and Chronicles, we're given the plot of the story. Um, but in the book of Psalms, we are given the way in which we are to understand this plot, this story of this man named David. It's interesting, David was not a prophet. He was not a priest. He was a shepherd and then a court musician, a soldier, and then a political leader. His life was lived in what we might mistakenly call the secular realm, in ordinary day-to-day life. And yet, this is the one, this is the man who teaches us how to pray. Of the 73 Psalms that have David's name, 13 are given specific incidents, or they refer to specific incidents in his life. Psalm 3, we're looking at today. Psalm 7, he sang to God with regard to Cush the Benjaminite. Psalm 18, when the Lord delivered him out of the hands of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Psalm 34, when he feigned madness before Abimelech. Psalm 51, when Nathan the prophet came to him and confronted him about Bathsheba. Psalm 52, when Doeg the Edomite had in fact killed the high priest and the priest in the house of Ahimelech because David had gone to them. Psalm 54, when the Ziphites went and told Saul, hey, David's hiding here among us, come and get him. Psalm 56, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. Psalm 57, when he fled from Saul in the cave. Psalm 59, when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. And Psalm 60, when he strove with the leaders to the north um, in Damascus, and Joab killed 12,000 of Edom. Psalm 63, when he was in the wilderness of Judah. And then we have a large gap. It's finally Psalm 142, when he was in the cave. Two things should strike us about this list. It's the reason that I've read it. First of all, each incident is during a time of trouble. There's not a single royal psalm representing the kingly office. The psalms in which we have these titles are, in fact, when David was in trouble. He is struggling through what many human beings have to struggle through, the dark passages of life. And this seems to confirm our suspicion that prayer begins with trouble. That is, we pray out of need. There is praise in these psalms, plenty of it, but there is trouble and that's what gets it started. I mentioned this last week, or maybe two weeks ago, that someone said, I only pray when I'm in trouble, but I'm in trouble all the time, so I pray all the time. And in David's psalms, he's in trouble and he cries out to God. 
That's the first thing. The second thing is the list is random. There isn't an attempt to sort of connect every psalm with a specific time or period or incident in David's life. To sort of prove, oh, David prayed. When this happened, David prayed. When this happened, David prayed. We're not told that. We're simply given this list that seems rather random of times in which David prayed when he was in trouble. The purpose of the psalm titles is to get us prepared. If you wish, it is to prime the pump, to show us what is possible, to get our attention, to say, the, the trouble you're in right now, remember David? David was in, a, in trouble, and this is what he prayed when he cried out to God. By praying, you don't get out of trouble. You don't get out of difficulty, whether it be with the issue you have with sin, or with family, or with enemies. In fact, one could argue that in the midst of trouble, if you pray, you will find that it's even more difficult. It becomes even more demanding. We are not above it all. Prayer is not an escapist thing. And that's why story is so important. Where are you right now? What has happened to you? You slept last night, maybe slept well, maybe you didn't sleep well, but here you are, a new day, and you, you thank God within that context. At the end of the day, you go back and you review, and you're like, well, what are the things that happened? What are the things that didn't happen? What did I do wrong? Um, what did I do right? How did God manifest himself to me? The story is there, and we need to keep that in mind. We aren't simply cardboard characters that sort of spew out these words and that's prayer. It is in the midst of our life, in the midst of the stories of our life, in which God is speaking to us that we respond to him in prayer. You may have noticed that the book of Psalms is made up of five books. Have you noticed that? At the beginning of Psalm 1, at the top, it says, Book 1. The men who compiled the book of Psalms, and this was done much after David's death, put them into five books or sections. At the end of Psalm 41, we read, Praise be to God, or be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and Amen. It sounds like a conclusion, but it's not because we still have 108 Psalms to go. At the end of Psalm 72, by the way, a Psalm by Solomon, it's worth noting. It concludes, or it says, this concludes the prayers of David, son of Jesse. You're like, no it doesn't. Um, first of all, this was not a prayer of David. This was a prayer of Solomon's. And we still have, do the math, 78 more Psalms to go. Um, we come to conclusions also at the end of Psalms 89 and 106. So we have five books of Psalms. Does that ring a bell with anything? Five books? The first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the Pentateuch, the books of the law. Why divide the Psalms up this way? I would suggest that it was done in part to guide us, to help us form healthy lives of prayer, to protect us from the common, all too common uh, mistake of presumptuous prayer. See, presumptuous prayer is, I'm not listening for God. I'm just talking. Um, in some ways, I don't care what God has done or what he is doing. Uh, I'm simply talking. It's me talking. 
Well, when we have the five books of Psalms, it matches the five books of the law in which God has spoken. The Psalms are, in fact, a response to that. God speaks to us before we speak to him. And to protect us from being presumptuous and just sort of skating into God's presence to say what we want, I think the Psalms are divided into these five books. See, in Genesis we have life at the beginning. And in Deuteronomy we have life's fulfillment. And we find God creating, God redeeming, God providing for his people, and God blessing his people. God's word is at work. He is an author who is at work. The world in which we live was created by God. Our lives fit within that story, within that narrative. And it is because God created the world that we are here and that we live our lives. So when we pray, um, I would argue that we should not simply talk about our story, even though that is a very good place to start, and I would recommend it. But we should, in fact, think of God's story. What did God do in Genesis? Created the world, called Abraham. What did he do in Exodus? He delivered his people. What did he do in Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy? What is it that God has done? Last week, we looked at the issue of prayer. And Peterson has mapped out three divisions of language. Language one is a language of personal intimacy and relationship. This is to be the language of prayer. But language two is that of information, and language three is that of motivation. And most of our prayers, I think, fall into categories two and three. That the relationship isn't what it should be. We are simply giving a list of information to God, and we're trying to motivate God to do for us what we want him to do. If you think about it, language by definition requires dialogue. It's not monologue. Because why would you create a language if you're the only person speaking? Language means that you have at least two parties involved in which one speaks and the other one listens and then responds while the first party listens to what is being said. In the first five books of the Old Testament, Moses gives us the word of God. It calls us into existence. It also brings judgment from Adam and Eve on. But it also brings salvation that we find in the Exodus. In the book of Psalms, David writes, and it is a response. He responds as we should. We call to God in trust and in protest sometimes. Why are you so far away? In lament and in praise. It's five and five. Uh, Peterson might go too far with this, but he says five and five as the two hands come together in prayer. God has spoken and we respond in prayer. Now, it isn't a verse-to-verse correspondence. You can't say, okay, this psalm deals with this chapter in Genesis or in Exodus. Or this verse with this verse. But in fact, what we find is that in the first five books, we are to be listening. God is speaking. And the book of Psalms, we are now being trained in how we are to respond, how we are to pray to God. So the answer is not simply to give stock answers. You know, that when we pray, we say the same thing every time. Granted, for example, when we pray before meals, there is... 
there is a similarity that we are thankful that God has provided the food that we have. But as our lives change, as our stories change, see, I would argue that the way we pray now should not be the same as we prayed 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago. Because we're not the same people. Our story, what's happened to us in the past week is radically different than 30 years ago. We could have never imagined that 30 years ago. Yesterday, Tim and Kim got married. Um, I remember when Dan called me on the phone to say that, that Tim had been born. Now he's in his mid-30s. Uh, it's a different story. The prayers are different because the story has changed. But in the book of Psalms, we, we learn, we develop a vocabulary. We learn a way of answering to God. As we hear David doing in Psalm 3. There is a vocabulary that we need. There is a proper grammar that we need. And it's found here in the book of Psalms. Now, we have... They're not here today, but Titus is here with us today. Some of uh, the members of this congregation will know better than I do that there's a kind of storytelling that only deals with plot. That you just have characters and they just move around, but there's nothing, we, we're not told anything about their interior life. And, you know, when you do that, then you can just write multiple stories where this, you know, this, this person does this and they do that. And, you know, it's all about the plot and not about the character at all. There's no character, there's no atmosphere, if you wish. It's simply action, action, action. Everything is outside. Everything is exterior. Uh, the action, the form, the incident. On the other hand, some writers, and I would say this is what we find in the book of Psalms, work from the inside, in which we find the characters in the story growing and developing. Some of them sort of hit a plateau, or they get stuck at a particular point. But others, we see this interior life as they grow and grow. From a biblical perspective, we see long and subtle changes. We can also see how sin does its work in our mind, but also God's movement of grace, how God so graciously works in people's lives. In the Christian community, I think there is almost like the cardboard character, there's almost that approach to the gospel. Eugene Peterson calls it a kind of salvation according to James Bond. You know, it's not about the interior, it's simply about action, action, action. He writes gaudy combinations of slogan and suggestion that promise diversion from boredom and omit mention of the demanding interiorizing of faith. You know how it is with teenagers, how that teenagers grow up physically? And they reach a certain height, and you know what they are. That's what they're going to be as adults. But inside, they're not adults yet. You know, when you look at the outside, you're like, well, this, you know, this guy's five foot whatever or six foot. This is how tall he's going to be. But that's only the exterior. At 13 or 14 or 15, he or she may have hit their peak in terms of what they're going to be physically. But they're still kids inside. And the inside needs to catch up with the outside. In the same way, we are the people of God, exterior, but in our hearts and in our souls, we need to catch up to that. We need to grow. 
And this is what the Psalms provide us. It is essential that we have the form, that we are the people of God, but the content needs to be there as well. And this takes time. Many Christians are happy to profess a form of religion. I'm a child of God. This is what I do. I go to church. I do all these things. But in terms of the interior, there may not be something there. And what needs to be inside is prayer. The life of prayer. Again, to quote Peterson, the story of salvation has predictable outlines, but the individual character of the saved person is never predictable. This is always unique. The uniqueness is carved by prayer. We would like, if the Spirit would allow it, to interiorize only the random bits and pieces of our lives on the occasions when we felt like it. The Psalms do not permit it. They are a rigorous interiorization of everything, the gamut of the human condition in the story of salvation. We're all Christians. We're God's people. But God works in our lives in different ways. And I think we would like, as Peterson tells us, to have this part of my life to be Christian, or this part of my life, I'll, I'll mention this in prayer. But what we find in the Psalms is every part of life is to be brought into prayer. That's the interior part of us as God's people. I think hypocrisy comes from almost being an adolescent as a Christian. You know, Physically, the exterior is there. You do the Christian things you're supposed to do. But you're still a kid inside. You just haven't grown up. And by the way, I'm sure we all know people who are adults by age, but in terms of emotional or mental whatever, they're still kids. As God's people, this can happen to us as well. We can become stunted. It is prayer that allows us to grow inside and to become the people that God wants us to be. God works with words, and he uses them to tell the story of salvation. And he has brought us into the story. We are a part of God's story of the saving of his people. When we believe we become part of the story. We willingly become participants in the plot. But how do we do this? Are we the James Bond figures? Are we just cut out figures that run around and do this? We do Christian things? Or are we in fact like the psalmist who has thrown himself into his relationship with God? See, because if he didn't have a relationship with God, why would he care if it seems that God has abandoned him? Why would he cry out to God in times of trouble? It is precisely because there is a relationship and he's not understanding, listen, I, I thought I was your child. I thought you were going to watch over me. Why have these things happened to me? And he does that in prayer, as should we. In the book of Psalms, we hear the phrases, we hear the words, and they educate us in the vocabulary of prayer. And then we become fluent by God's grace. And this is prayer. This is what we find in the book of Psalms. This is why David, having messed up big time, he should have punished his son Amnon. 
He should have punished his son Absalom. I think he should have shown compassion for his daughter Tamar. Instead he didn't do that and now he's, he's on the run. And in the midst of being on the run, he prays. See, because it's not just about running, his physical body going somewhere. It's about his relationship to God. And I hope by God's grace, we as individuals, but as a congregation, will grow up inside, as God's people, in a life of prayer. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word. In some measure, we begin to understand why you tell us all of these stories about your people. For many of us, these are the stories we tell children in Sunday school, not things we should bother with as adults. As adults, we should go to the epistles. But in fact, it is these stories which are the exterior They give context to the prayers of the Psalms, the interior. And we as your people are not merely flesh and blood, not merely physical, the exterior, but we are your children in our hearts and in our minds. We need to grow into that which you've called us to be. May we learn from the Psalms, and by your grace may we be people of prayer. Thank you for bringing us together today. We thank you for Tim and Kim's wedding and pray you watch over them and draw them to yourself. And we thank you for the wonderful news from Oscar of Zib's pregnancy. Watch over her and the baby as well. And for Stacy and her baby as well. Watch over us as we leave this place, as we walk through the world in this coming week. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.